Good afternoon, listeners. This is the DOGS program, Defence of Government Schools. We are about public education, not private education. And we are about separating church from state. And we've been around for some, some many years. There's nothing new about the things we stand for, uh, but they are very important to the well-being of our democracy. Uh, we have a website at www.adogs.info and this afternoon we have a press release 886 which is entitled The ACER and the Art of Neutral Apolitical Research. And as well as that, we would like to talk about the um, what is about COVID and the three essential lessons that COVID has taught us about education over in America. Joel Westheimer has got something to say about that on Diana Ravitch's blog. As well as that, there's been some very interesting developments down in the southeast of, of Melbourne where there's a number of parents who are very sensible. They realise that public education is a much better investment for their children than private education, but they like to think that they can shop around for the best public schools. So they have to buy their homes in the right area. And where there is a good public school, then the values of the properties go up. So they are very put out, some parents, about the dotted lines uh, that have been put around schools by the Victorian government. But we've got a really good, nice news story along the same lines because up here in West North Melbourne, the parents and the teachers of the North Melbourne Primary School fought a quite different battle. There was going to be a new school put up and they were going to divide the children into the haves and the have-nots and they have stopped it. So Maddie will be talking about the great state school and the great parents and teachers uh, up here in North and West Melbourne. So let's go on with it. The press release 886, the ACR and the Art of Neutral Apolitical Research. Academics and researchers in Australia have for 60 years avoided the private-public controversy in education. I can speak from experience that if you do want to talk about this, it isn't good for your career in education, I can assure you, even in the education department itself. Being neutral has, in fact, meant favouring the private sector. Avoiding the state aid issue has merely fuelled glaring inequalities in our education systems. It's a bit like Australia's black history. You know, the one that didn't exist until very recently? The state aid history like that has become almost invisible. Well, as we all know, there are some Indigenous people who are making sure that it's no longer in, in, um, invisible. And here at the Dogs, we make sure that the state aid history isn't invisible too. Now, take, for example the track record of the Australian Council for Educational Research. That's ACER. And Oliver's going to tell you about recent developments there. Over to you, Oliver. 
Thank you, Jane. In 2015, ASA Chief Executive Professor Jeff Masters AO wrote an influential series of articles on the big five challenges facing Australian school education. Six years and a global pandemic later, what progress has been made towards meeting those challenges? In five webinars between February and May, experts from education research and practice around the world are discussing, discussing education's most pressing issues and look to the future of education in Australia and beyond. Despite reform efforts, regular government reviews and ongoing calls for change, progress towards improving the quality and equity of Australian education is often slow. Professor Masters wrote in 2015, the same is true on the international stage. Progress towards meeting the UN Sustainable Development Goal 4 to ensure inclusive and equitable quality education and promote lifelong learning for all was too slow before COVID-19 hit. And what progress has, had been made was reversed by school closures caused by the pandemic. Real reform depends on tackling the deepest, most stubborn underlying challenges facing Australian education, Professor Masters argued. He identified the following big five challenges. One, raising the status of the teaching profession. Two, reducing disparities between Australian schools. Three, designing a 21st century curriculum. Four, getting all children off to a good start. And five, reducing the long tail of underachievement. Six years on, the ACER has revisited these big five challenges. The most obvious challenges from the dog's point of view is the second one, reducing disparities between Australian schools. One would have thought that in this research paper produced in 2021 by a principal researcher at ACER, Dr. Ainley, we would finally see credible funding figures explaining the blindingly obvious differences between the infrastructure and resources of the private and public sector schools. We expected at least a few figures, such as those produced by Trevor Kobold of Save Our Schools. Imagine our astonishment when we read Ainley's paper and found not one funding comparison between the public and private sector. His paper is an interesting one, but dare we say it, best noted not for what it includes, but for what it leaves out. If you don't believe the dogs, here it is, reproduced for your perusal. Yes, well, we'll get Maddie to read that, but after a bit of a break. Housing for the Aged Action Group has gone digital to help stop the spread of the coronavirus, but we're still here. If you're over 50 years old and having problems with your housing, we can help. If you're having trouble paying the rent, problems with your retirement village manager or concerned about your caravan park, give us a call on 1300 765 178. We can also help connect you with aged care services and emergency relief if you need it. Stay safe, everyone. Well, here we are on the DOGS program and we've been talking about researchers and how they avoid what the dogs are prepared to talk about. That doesn't mean to say that what they have to say is not worth listening to. And Maddie is going to read from us the paper uh, that was given by the head honcho, Mr. Ainley uh, of the ACER, ACER, if you like, the Australian Council for Educational Research, a very well-esteemed public body. Uh, on reducing disparities between Australian schools. Now, it's a very interesting paper, but please note that no mention is made of public education, no mention is made of 
private education. And the only interesting bit for us is what he has to say about non-government schools. So over to you, Maddie. Let's hear what Mr Ainsley has to say. Absolutely. Reducing disparities between Australian schools is the title of the article that Ainley has wrote. And um, he says, experts from education research and practice have named system level support, high quality teaching and instructional leadership as critical elements for making student outcomes less dependent on which school they attend. Reducing the disparity between the schooling experiences of students in Australia's most and least advantaged schools is one of five key challenges in school education, identified six years ago by Professor Jeff Masters, Chief Executive of the Australian Council for Educational Research, which is ASA. So ASA is currently hosting a series of webinars exploring what progress has been made towards meeting these challenges and what the essential next steps are. The second of these webinars focused on reducing disparities between schools. So ASA Principal Research Fellow, Dr. John Ainley, began the webinar by explaining the disparities between schools are measured by looking at the differences among all students that are attributable to variations in the means of schools that they attend. We talk about this as a percentage of the variance. The between school variance expressed as a percentage of total variance. It can range from zero, where there is no difference in school means and all of the difference is among the students within schools, to 100, where all the students in every school are the same and all differences are about differences between schools. Dr. Ainley told participants that the percentage of the variance in student reading achievement between schools, as measured by the 2018 OECD Program for International Student Assessment, ranges from a low of 7% in Finland to more than 50% in Germany. Australia recorded a between school variance of 18% in 2018, down from 24% in 2009, and is similar to the level recorded in 2000. So he's but, talking about different schools and their different means, which really is, he's talking about variance and he's talking about percentages. He doesn't talk about public and private. He talks about the means of the schools, what, what they are able to give their, their students. Hmm. Um, and um, it's so vague that really you can't you can't. It's avoidant. Absolutely yeah. yeah. Um, but what you do have there is a very interesting only 7% of differences between schools in Finland, which means that they're pretty equal. Um, Germany, 50%, which means there's a lot, a lot of difference between them. And in Australia, it's um, 18% in 2018, but it wor- according to him, it was worse in 2009 at 24%. So um, it's really very vague there as to how he's come to those conclusions. Uh, mm. if you just look at the funding they received and what resources they've got, I think they'd come to it would be much easier to do it. But has he done that? You know, how has he got to these percentages? It's very, very unclear. It Sorry, Maddie, over to you. No, that's quite all right. I, I love your interjections. It seems very wishy-washy. Academic anyway. planning, academic is the, the yes. Uh, 
<laughs> Perfect. All right, I'm going to continue reading his uh, article. But as ASA Senior Research Fellow Dr Tanya Vaughan explained, at the same time that disparities between schools were getting smaller, the total spread of PISA, which is the Program for International Student Assessment, reading scores uh, among Australian students increased. The percentage variance in reading achievement within schools widened from 74% in 2009 to 81% in 2018. Dr Ainley said that this phenomenon was partly due to a concurrent increase in school size, particularly among non-government schools, coupled with a decline in reading achievement among non-government schools and could also be due to school improvement initiatives. He cited support for continuous improvement as one of the three features of countries with low disparities among schools along with low stratification of the school system and even distribution of income across the community. Now, isn't that interesting? Mm. Uh, he's not really spelling out, he's, he's using um, code language almost for saying that the non-government schools haven't been doing that well uh, and that there are inequalities in income amongst the parents uh, of the children probably um, but, and there are disparities between schools, but he doesn't say exactly what these disparities are or how you measure them because exactly. that involved him in talking about resources and funding. Keep going, darling. Um, it seems to me that he knows exactly what he's leaving out. All right. He says, when we talk about disparities among schools, we really need to see this as the responsibility of the system. It's about resourcing and it's about support. And then Christine Corsi. So, so he's yeah. going to blame the administrators, not the politicians, okay? Yes, mm -hmm. there you are. Mm -hmm. Keep going. Mm -hmm. Christine Corsi, principal of Western Sydney's Rooty High, Hill High School, agreed that having support from the system as well as some clever organisational and operational skills, was critical to being able to target resources to where they are most needed. She noted the primary resource in government schools, accounting for more than 96% of budgets in New South Wales, is staffing. So being we're talking about government schools, and this lady, of course, um, has got a, uh, a school which is very disadvantaged and has done wonders there mm -hmm. and she's saying that she's been getting uh, support from the centre the public school centre and yep. that um but most of their money goes on school on on teacher salaries yeah which you know is also important paying your teachers what they deserve is is of the utmost importance but it's just an issue of funding and where that money is going and where it ends up and how it gets there. Right, Miss Corsi goes on to say, being able to develop skills and capabilities and build expertise with a whole, being able to provide the kind of deep professional learning that young teachers and old teachers need to be able to try new initiatives is a very critical part of our work and one that is sometimes underestimated. Dr. Vaughan discussed the importance of adopting evidence-based high-impact strategies for improvement, drawing on her work as Associate Director of Evidence for Learning. 
High quality teaching can have a massive impact on our students. And in fact, I think encouragingly, it can help those students that we need to reach most. That's what Dr. Vaughan said. And she was citing research showing an effect size of 0.47 among students with the highest level of disadvantage compared to 0.32% for students of uh, middle achievement. Um, she also highlighted the importance of instructional leadership. She goes on to say, when teachers work alongside leaders in professional learning, in upskilling, in capacity building, in changing the practices that occur in the classroom, we know that this can have an even greater impact of 0.84 effect size. This is massive. And this is the power of excellent leadership. Now, I don't know how much of all of this that we've been reading out our listeners took in or understood because it certainly contains a lot of education in talk. What they have to say about the teachers and the importance of teachers um, is, 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 you know, very interesting indeed. But docs note that this particular researcher, that's Dr Ainley, is expert at playing it safe in the political leadership game because there's a lot of talk about leadership. Note that in the ACER parlance, reference is made to government and non-government schools, not private or public ones. And what did, however, come out was that non-government schools, in spite of all the generous state aid, are actually not performing as well as one would expect. Mm. Now, in the same series, there's an article by the Deputy CEO of the Research of ACER entitled the long tail of underachievement in Australia because we are now 60 years into the state aid history and billions of dollars have been poured into the private sector and yet we are still underachieving internationally and there's large, large numbers of disadvantaged students, mainly at well over 80% of them in public schools that um, are, are underachieving. But once again, in true ACER tradition, there's a blanket refusal to bite the funding bullet. So we'll have a bit of a break and then Sora will come back and read you the, the, the long tale of underachievement in Australia, which is the paper that was produced by the deputy CEO of ACER, of the Australian Council for Educational Research, a lady called Sue Thompson. It's a very interesting article, but once again, the bullet is not bitten. For three years, teachers have had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions, and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. I'm a proud product of a government funded primary school education and of a government funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world, and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's simply not good enough that kids with disability miss out. Our education is not for profit. Our education is not for profit. You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. Well, you're listening to the Dogs Program here on 3CR. We're here every Saturday at this time. We have the hour 
and we try to keep you well informed on what is happening in public education and uh, all of the problems that the state aid to private schools is giving, all the grief it's giving to Australia as a whole and to public education in particular. And we're talking about the ACR and some very interesting research that they're doing because the ACR is our public researcher of education in Australia. And uh, we've pointed out that they're very politically neutral. Now, Sorrell is going to read us an article that has appeared in The Teacher, from the, that is a, a magazine, by Sue Thompson, the Deputy CEO Research at the Australian Council for Education Research, and it is entitled The Long Tale of Underachievement in Australia. Over to you, Sorrell. Thank you, Jean. So the big five education challenges, the long tale of underachievement in Australia. Little progress has been made over the past six years or even 20 years in addressing this tale of underachievement. One of the biggest challenges facing educators is to find better ways to meet the learning needs of the many students who fall behind in our schools. The latest findings from PISA, the Program for International Student Assessment, shows that in Australia, roughly one in five 15-year-olds are failing to achieve the international baseline proficiency level in reading literacy, and about the same proportion is mathematical literacy and scientific literacy. This is Australia's long tail of underachievement. This international baseline of proficiency is set at a fairly low level. These are the students that the OECD has deemed are unable to demonstrate the capacity to use their reading literacy skills to acquire knowledge and to solve a wide range of practical problems. It is considered the baseline proficiency at which students are able to fully participate in society. While it is true that there are many countries with a longer tail than Australia, these are not the countries to which we would normally make comparisons. And it is notable that a few such countries, such as Estonia, Singapore and Ireland, record rates of around 11% of students below the international baseline proficiency, close to half that of Australia. We know that students who perform poorly at 15 are at risk of dropping out of school completely and that students who are poor readers at school are unlikely to improve much by the time they become young adults. A range of studies have shown that low levels of literacy and numeracy skills limit access to well-paid jobs and rewarding jobs, and amongst other things, are reflected in poorer health outcomes and lower levels of social and political participation. And whilst raising standards is an important goal in its own right, it is also essential in ensuring that our education system is capable of achieving the aims of the Mpatwe Education Declaration, including providing all young Australians with equality of opportunity. Little progress has been made over the past six years in addressing this tale of underachievement. In fact, the spread of cores on scores on the PISA reading has widened over time, from 261 points in 2000 to 284 points in 2018. This can be shown in figure one, which shows achievements at the PISA proficiency levels from 2000 through to 2018. 
Note that over time, the OECD has expanded some of the lower and higher levels to provide a more defined picture of achievement, resulting in more levels into the 2018 than the 2000 model. In 2000, 12% of Australian students did not achieve at the baseline of level two. And by 2015, this had grown up to 18%. And in 2018, 20%. Those are scary figures. We're talking about very, very basic ability to read and understand and solve problems. Um, 12% of Australian students in 2000 has grown to 20% in 2018. So what would it even be now in 2021? Well, obviously something is wrong. Something Mm. wrong. you know, people should be looking very carefully at what is actually not just going on in the schools but between schools. And yet there's been no mention of resources or funding. Of course not. These are the figures that the Conservatives um, who say that money doesn't matter and who blame the teachers um, are using, but they are there. And, um, yes, keep going. These are very interesting. Thank you. I completely agree. It's a worrying uh, statistic. Um, Paraphrasing masters proposed solutions to the issue of our long tail include looking at more flexible ways of organizing teaching and learning to better target individuals' current levels of achievement and learning needs and reconceptualizing successful learning as the progress that individuals make in their learning, regardless of their starting points. However, If we are to hope to achieve a stage, not age-based school system, we need to make sure all learners experience a level playing field. Otherwise, we are at risk of enshrining the soft bigotry of low expectations. What's a level playing field, I wonder? I wonder. (laughs) Could be equal funding. Um, Well, no, there's no mention of that. There's this thing called the soft bigotry of low expectations yeah it means that uh children who come from low income families are expected to do worse it doesn't sound very equitable no. to me oh no very interesting yeah. isn't it yeah keep well, going such soft bigotry leads educators and education systems to not have the same expectations of all students to judge one group of students as less likely to achieve well based on their defining characteristics, be that gender, cultural or linguistic background or socioeconomic background, Mm. and so to fail to provide the scaffolding necessary for these students to achieve at the same level as their peers. That's very interesting too because only a couple of weeks ago, wasn't it, we were talking about how uh, there are expectations of a child who goes to Geelong Grammar or even to Haleybury or Hale over in Western Australia. Mr Christian Porter had expectations which were (laughs) at the point realised. But um, somebody who goes to Sunshine High School or Braybrook High School, um, their expectations are considerably less, whether or not they would get into the Liberal Party and if, of course, they're a lady, then it's a little bit uh, more difficult again. So um, she is talking about something that is very real. But um, 
perhaps we could start with thinking about putting uh, lots of extra resources, financial, into some of these uh, less advantaged schools. I wonder if Geelong Grammar could give up some of its uh, wonderful resources. Well, that would be so nice, wouldn't it? Uh, education shouldn't be a charity. I would argue that it's not soft bigotry, it's overt classism. Okay, sorry to interrupt. Keep going, uh, Sol, <laughs> with what this lady, Sue Thompson, has to say. For example, PISA reports results by student immigration background. Australian-born, first-generation, student-born in Australia and at least one parent born overseas, and foreign-born, student and parents both born overseas. However, as can be seen in Figure 2, there are no striking differences between the proportion of students from any one of these three categories. 19% of Australian-born students, 16% of first-generation students, and 21% of foreign-born students do not achieve proficiency level two. Compare this to the distribution according to student socioeconomic background. 31% of the students in the lowest quartile of socioeconomic background, that is students from a disadvantaged background according to the OECD nomenclature, failed to achieve proficiency two compared to 10% of those in the highest quartile of socioeconomic background, students from an affluent background. Socioeconomically disadvantaged students have been and are still disproportionately represented in the tale of underachievement in Australian schools. If the aim of education is to improve opportunities for all students and not just to maintain the social status quo, then this is not working. And 80% of those disadvantaged children or more are in the public system, but that's not said. At any stage, no, no. That's, that is the, that is the figure that we're not to talk about. Mm. Do keep going. Disadvantage has many layers. Outside that of the home, disadvantaged students more often attend schools with the shortages of resources, physical, educational, and teaching. As Chris Bonner has said, we have ignored the tenacious grip that family background has on student achievement. Although all schooling systems face that challenge, few concrete disadvantaged students within the disadvantaged schools to the degree evident in Australia does. Our schools are increasingly characterised less by what they do and more by who they enrol. Our framework of schools has become more regressive, divided and segregated. Until that playing field is level, we cannot contemplate a stage, not age system. And that's the closest that she's prepared to go to mm. say that there are some schools that are not as well-resourced as others. Well, dogs find it fascinating that so much learned and you must admit it's interesting, factual research can be done by a publicly funded research body like the ACER without biting the church, state and inequitable funding bullet. Mm. There is no recognition, for example, of the simple fact 
exposed by Trevor Cobalt of Save Our Schools, that private school funding has risen six times more than public school funding in the last decade. There's a lot of talk about how the underachievement or things have actually got worse in the last two decades, but there's no mention. There's mention of resources, there's mention of systems, there's mention of non-government, there's mention of government, but no mention of that very simple fact that the private sector funding it takes precedence over the public sector funding and the public sector has most of the disadvantaged underachieving students. And this in spite of the fact that more than 80% of our disadvantaged children in fact are in their schools and 95% of the disadvantaged schools are in the public sector. But aren't we lucky? Here on 3CR right now, with the dogs, we're not fearful for our jobs, our careers, or our reputation. Been there, done that. <laughs> Call a spade a spade and bite those funding bullets hard. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card. And once a year, your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. going to go to Dale, our producer, and she's got a very interesting article from Diana Ravitch's blog from a man called Joel Westheimer. The three essential lessons that COVID has taught us about education. Over to you, Dale. Thank you, Jean. Yes, this article is really interesting. So Diane Rabich has decided to reproduce it in full on her blog, and we appreciate that fact that she has. So Joel Westheimer is a professor of education at the University of Ottawa. Uh, he wrote this article for the Ottawa Citizen and shared it with Diane Rabich. Depth matters more than breadth. Westheimer wrote, three essential lessons COVID-19 has taught us about education. During the pandemic, we rediscovered what teachers and students have always known, that schooling is about relationships, learning is a social process, and a deep dive into a topic of interest is worth more than a stress-filled endurance swim in the shallows. When did the Assyrian Empire's reign over Mesopotamia begin and end? If you don't know, you have a lot of company and you're about to have even more. Because of the COVID-19 pandemic, countless 9 and 10-year-olds missed lessons about one ancient civilization or another this past year. History and geography aren't the only subjects affected. Some middle school students won't learn the three functions of mitochondria. High school maths teachers may have skipped lessons in differential equations. And who knows how many missed the opportunity to read Paolo Coelho's brilliant allegorical novel, The Alchemist. So what? 
The first lesson parents, educators and policymakers should draw from our collective school experiences during the pandemic is this. Content matters much more than coverage. For more than three decades, the school curriculum has become increasingly consumed with all the things students should know before they graduate. That has resulted in an unprecedented global obsession with micromanaging teachers' work to ensure the right information is taught and with standardised testing to find out if they're succeeding. Every day we read about children falling behind, but the curriculum is bursting at the seams. Falling behind what? Behind whom? Research in teaching and child development tells us that learning how to think analytically is much more important than cramming in material that students won't remember weeks or years later. We live in an age of instantly accessible information in an infinite number of domains. Living well in the 21st century does not require more information, but rather the knowledge and skills needed to sift understand and assess the quality of information. Teaching content matters, but covering every possible historical event and scientific or mathematical concept does not. Let's turn our concern over learning loss during the pandemic to focus on what was gained. We rediscovered what teachers and students have always known, that schooling is about relationships, Learning is a social process and a deep dive into a topic of great interest is worth more than the stress-filled endurance swim in the shallows. What matters are the connections that teachers make both to students and their families and between subject matter and the outside world. A second lesson for education I take away from the pandemic is that inequality undermines the work educators do. This should not be a new lesson, but it was a wake-up call. COVID-19 has functioned like an X-ray, exposing already existing fault lines, poverty and economic inequality, unequal access to high-speed internet and computers, and inadequate resources for those most in need. Calls during the pandemic for parents to make sure their children don't fall behind only increased these already existing inequalities. Some parents have the time, resources and education to demand their kids follow the curriculum, maybe even get ahead. Other parents are frontline workers or hold down two jobs or working at home with little time for other activities. School cannot solve all of society's problems, but they are a place where we can acknowledge them. For example, some teachers brought new scrutiny to how they assign grades. Could the way we evaluate students' prospects reflect the fact that students come from such different starting points? As children return to the classrooms, let's try, both within and outside of schools, to address inequality in meaningful ways. A third lesson from the pandemic is that teaching is essential work. Remember those amusing memes from last year when the schools shut down? homeschooling day one, and just like that, teachers were appreciated again. Homeschooling day two, we should double our teachers' salaries. Homeschooling day three, I must apologise to the teacher for insisting that Susie was gifted. 
funny, mm -hmm. yes, but also revealing. Psychologists tell us that good humour often points to truths that everybody knows but nobody admits. I hope that we learn a newfound respect and admiration for the difficult and vital work teachers do. Will it be a little harder to claim teachers are lazy or have too much time off or that class size doesn't matter? Teachers' working conditions are children's learning conditions and we should do everything we can to assist their efforts. There are other lessons to take away. At the University of Ottawa, colleagues and I have started a research collaborative, Chanine, Change, Engagement and Innovation in Education to make sure these lessons don't get lost in the shuffle back to brick and mortar schooling. Already we've learned that educational technology can enrich good teaching, but can't replace poor teaching. That we could give students less homework and fewer tests. That the outdoors is a vastly underused resource for teaching and learning. And that trusting teachers' frontline judgments is crucial. When school returns to full swing, Let's give teachers latitude in what, how and when to teach any particular subject matter. Their primary job should be to restore a sense of safety, nurture a sense of possibility and rebuild the community lost through the extended social isolation. By the way, the Assyrian Empire fell in 609 BC. I had to look it up. Yes, well, there you are. The teachers actually are important. And um, it is about time they were paid a decent salary. Uh, up in New South Wales, they've been treated very stingily indeed. But um, as we found out from the Rooty Hill principal, 96% uh, of the public school's um, resources go towards paying the teachers. Uh, so that means there's not enough money for other things. And the parents, as we found out last, last week, having to pay enormous sums of money, so-called voluntary contributions towards our free public education system. But we'll have a little bit of a break now and um, we'll come back to um, a very interesting article that was in The Age this week. And Sorrel will be telling us about what's been happening down in the southeastern suburbs. The Black Lives Matter movement is not going away here or overseas. It gives me hope seeing the numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me the understanding that we will win, folks. We will succeed! Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Well, here we are back on the dogs program for our final session. We're getting towards that great state school and we're going to get there. And uh, we're going to have Sol first telling us that a dotted line means that Jack and Hannah will attend their third closest state school and their mother is not happy. Mm -hmm. Over to you, Sol. Thank you, Jean. So Adam Carey has written, 
about this issue. And he writes, To the naked eye, the brick houses and pruned gardens of Wallace Avenue in Marambina look like a peaceful slice of middle suburbia. But the white dotted line that runs up the middle of the street has become a new source of contention, having just been defined as the boundary line for the catchment of one of Melbourne's most sought-after state secondary schools. School zone boundaries for 2022 announced last week have brought the south side of Wallace Avenue into the coveted zone of McKinnon Secondary College. Residents on the north side have been zoned either to Bentley Secondary College or South Oakley Secondary College, depending on which end of the street they live in. It's a crucial distinction. Home values inside the McKinnon zone were on average $167,500,000, higher than outside the school zone last year. Research by the Real Estate Institute of Victoria has found. But it's another set of numbers that has riled Carolyn Baird, who lives on the north side of the avenue. Miss Baird, who has two children in primary school, has been shifted out of the Bentley Secondary College zone and into South Oakley's, even though Bentley is closer to home. In fact, South Oakley is the third closest school to the family home. McKinnon and Bentley, the school that she had hoped to send her children, Hannah 9 and Jack 7 to, are both closer. So this lady really just wants her local school, doesn't she? She wants her local community school. Absolutely. But they're cutting across, uh, they're trying to treat our public schools, particularly our secondary schools, as if they are private schools. Um, mm-hmm. Putting them in competition with each other, which is really a very sad situation, which is coming out of what we were talking about last week that 1.8 billion that is going into different schools uh, in private funding. Well, Miss Baird tells us that McKinnon is the beast that no one will ever get into. So I'm not even going to take that on in an argument. But I will take on the argument of equity in education. And by allocating my family, to the third closest school, they're not adhering to that. According to Victoria's Education Department, a designated local government school is generally the public school within closest proximity to the student's permanent residential address. For the Baird family, that school is McKinnon, 1.8 kilometres away, followed by Bentley at 2.7 kilometres and then third, South Oakley at 2.9 kilometres. Not mm-hmm. just that, the journey to South Oakley also involves a 45-minute one-way trip on two public buses, a demanding journey Miss Bard likens to that taken by many private school students. That's fine because you're paying for that and you're going into that with your eyes wide open. But at a government school, I think you have to go by different standards, she says. It's just not a journey that she wants to subject her daughter Hannah to twice each day, even though she says South Oakley is a good school. I just want guaranteed access to my local school, she says. 
McKinnon is one of a small number of Victorian government schools that has a restricted zone. Such is the level of demand to enrol there. Its zone will expand in 2022 because a new campus is due to open that will ease the load on the school. The Sunday Age asked the Education Department for a list of restricted zone schools, but has received no answer. McKinnon's restricted zone status has led the department to include parts of Marambina inside South Oakley's zone, even though Bentley is closer. The department has declined to say why. A spokesman said the state government's investment in new schools and upgrades to existing schools was enabling the department to reduce the number of restricted zones. School zones are reviewed reviewed each year and published on the Find My School website, which was launched in 2019. The department said 22 school zones had been changed for 2022, but declined to provide a list of them. Amongst the schools due to open next year is Fisherman Bend's Secondary College. Its zone will include Southbank and Port Melbourne, easing the pressure on Albert Park College, which faced a council vote last month to deny its students access to Gasworks Park. That's very interesting. And let me talk about this Albert College um, issue. The children there um, haven't got very much uh, uh, space to play in. So they've been using the park nearby and the local residents are a little bit edgy about it. Uh, And now their councillors said that they can't use it. Now, this is a government school being denied access to a public park. But at Flagstaff Gardens, there is a huge Haileybury College opposite the Flagstaff Gardens and it has no playing fields at all. And every lunchtime, those children are in the Flagstaff Gardens and taking it over. I doubt that the school pays anything. And I suppose it is a public park and children need to play somewhere. But so is Gasworks Park. What upset a few people was when a teacher complained about the hobo who was hanging out his washi because there are different people who live in the park who don't have a home and they have been there for years. That is their home. And we all understand that. We all often feed them and what you know, we know about our hobos. They belong to our community. But the teacher made that hobo be removed. That's disgusting. So that's my story. Let's have a good news story, Maddie. Every week on the Doctor Program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the school. week. Great state schools. State, state schools. schools. School are of the week. Schools. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. This is a school which ticks almost every box you can imagine and the parents and teachers should be congratulated for their efforts to keep it welcoming, diverse and unifying. And this great state school is North Melbourne Primary School and their story is actually quite different. Not everybody in our insecure society is chasing the most exclusive private school for their offspring or the best public school in the best suburb placing themselves into ridiculous debt, which is something that we've touched on today. Back in the day, 
In the terrible years of Kennett's school closures, the West Melbourne and North Melbourne communities lost two schools. West Melbourne, a lovely little rural childcare, zero to 12 school in the inner city and Boundary Road down near the North Melbourne flats. Errol Street, which um, is a school that I have a personal tie to. I went to this lovely school. I call it Errol Street. A lot of the community call it Errol Street. It is officially named North Melbourne Primary School, but yes, it is affectionately named Errol Street. Um, Errol Street was left to educate the children of the area. Over the years, the school population has mushroomed and it has become blindingly obvious that the closures were a terrible mistake and not everyone wants or can afford to send their children to, you know, Haleberry opposite the Flagstaff Gardens. So, a new school has been built in the Docklands, and now a new school is proposed a few blocks away from the Earl Street campus. But the community was concerned that there might be a return to the old times when the North Melbourne Flats children, many of the migrant and disadvantaged background, would be hived off into a separate school. They did not want a community of haves and have-nots. They wanted the new school to be an extension of the currently lovely school where all children from many backgrounds live and learn together, which was definitely a highlight of my primary school experience. There were so many kids and families from multicultural backgrounds, different privileged backgrounds, and it was just um, an epicenter of education and love. And I, and I know my family really enjoyed it. Um, and you know what? They've succeeded. As the following letter from Ellen Sandal, the Greens MP for the area indicates. Let me tell you a little bit more about North Melbourne Primary School. It has almost 900 pupils, 486 boys and 408 girls. 66% of its pupils come from the upper income quartile and 22% from the next quartile, while currently only 4% from the lower quartile. But 60% have language backgrounds other than English. So these middle-class parents are not, definitely not frightened of disadvantaged children from the North Melbourne Flats. Rather, they want to share their school and its advantages with them. The parent contributions are $570,741, a substantial amount being needed for essential items like computers and other private contrib contributions in this school are... Um, $144,000. Yet it only costs $10,000 approximately per head to educate a child there, considerably less than the $11,000 considered necessary. The NAPLAN results in reading and literacy are above average and all other results are just fine and dandy. What has happened? Um, the school, the new school was going to belong just to the children from the flats, they thought, and all the parents have got together and, and um, petitioned the education department and said, no, we want this to be an extension of Errol Street, North Melbourne, so that the children in the school down the road can come and share our wonderful facilities because they've got lovely grounds going right back to the uh, 19th century. And isn't that what community is about? It's about equity. The new school is going to be like an annex to this school um, and it will be a large school, but um, 
it's not very far away and um, a lot of children will all be mixing together very happily. Uh, if you'd like to find out more about the dogs, you can check out our website at www.adogs.info. But until next week, bye for now. Bye. Thank you. Goodbye. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.